You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Welcome to the fourth episode of Preservation Destination. Today, our guest is my friend, Kelly Calhoun, owner and operator of Calhoun Preservation. Welcome, Kelly. Hello, Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Well, I am what's known as a historic preservation consultant, and we wear many different hats, but most of the work that people contact me for um, have to do with historic tax credits, building surveys for individual buildings or groups of buildings, such as districts. And can you tell us about your education and how you got into doing what you're doing now? You know, I think it's it's good to say that whenever someone asks me, you know, oh, Kelly, where are you from? I always say, well, I'm from the Gulf Coast region. And the reason I say that is because my father was in the oil and gas industry, and so we moved around constantly. Uh, for example, I was born in Lafayette, spent elementary school years in Houston, Biloxi in middle school, high school in Shreveport, college in Dallas, and grad school in New Orleans. As a result, I became more aware of these patterns of um, interaction that people have with buildings. And during architecture school in Dallas, I knew I didn't want to become a licensed architect. However, I was really interested in that cultural heritage aspect. Mm -hmm. And then understanding how people interact with buildings that led me to Tulane University's Master of Preservation Studies program. So I graduated from that in 2016. And a few months after graduation, I was commissioned to do several small projects. So I started to think about opening up my own preservation firm. And it's called Calhoun Preservation now. And here we are two years later, and it's just booming. So preservation is the industry to get in. Yeah, well, at least here anyway. <laughs> Definitely in New Orleans. This city is unlike any other as far as the citizens' dedication to preserving their mm -hmm. architectural and cultural heritage. Absolutely. All right, folks, this is the episode where you're going to want to take notes. Kelly is a fountain of knowledge, and we are lucky to have her here. And we're going to discuss a variety of topics ranging from property research to tax credits to site surveys. So let's start with a hypothetical client for you. Say a homeowner contacts you wanting to find out more about the history of their home. What would your steps be in working with the client to gather the info that they're looking for? Great question, Taylor. That is, that is a question that involves many, many layers. Mm -hmm. Usually the client has a specific idea of what they want. Some are interested in understanding maybe a chronology of ownership of the houses. Some are more interested in understanding architectural terms, dates of alterations. Some are interested in maybe their building's contribution to the neighborhood. Some are interested in all of them. So the first thing I would do is ask the client what the purpose of the research is because there's many different avenues and methods that us as historic preservation consultants and researchers and historians go down. So that would be my first question to them. And usually they, they start to give me an idea. So let's say that they're very open to receiving any information that gives a good character to the building, which mm -hmm. includes owners in the past, some with fun histories, and throwing in important architectural elements or what that means for the neighborhood. The first thing I would do is ask them to give me any documentation that already exists on the property. I usually give them an hourly rate. And so this saves so much time as far as their budget. Mm -hmm. And it saves a lot of time in my research if they already have newspaper articles, old photographs, building sketches, all of that information gives me a little bit more fuel in this report. Mm -hmm. 
So I would ask for that. So would you say that like usually when people contact you with this particular interest, most of the time they may have already done some research and have a few items available? Yes. A lot of the time people usually try to do this on their own first Mm -hmm. and then they find that they're pretty overwhelmed or don't understand maybe some of the departments or, or who you have to ask to get into certain research rooms. So that is the value of hiring a historic preservation consultant or historian is that these these professionals understand those avenues already and they can find it in a fraction of the time mm-hmm. and usually can interpret that information into something that you can relay to uh to friends and family and to future owners of the house sure or building and i can i can imagine especially here having even a slight uh, fluency in spanish or french or both can be helpful when doing research as well that's a very good point Uh, i took four years of french back in high school this was over a decade ago and it still comes in handy as mm-hmm. far as interpreting old notarial archives, especially here in New Orleans. Um, up until even the mid-1800s, a lot of the real estate documents were written in French. Mm-hmm. And even earlier, they were written in Spanish. Now, French and Spanish are both Romance languages, and so they have similar structures, similar words. So reading it can become easier. Mm-hmm. But, however, there are people who can interpret it. And especially here in New Orleans, we have a lot of international schools Mm -hmm. who import teachers from France and Spain to educate our, what do you call them here, primary schools? Yeah. And uh, so I've hired... I've hired a fluent French speaker to give me a word-to-word transcription of a... What was it? It was in the notarial archives, but it was very important for me to have every word of that translated. Uh, I I could kind of get by as far as understanding it, but her knowledge was a valuable resource. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, um, you know, going back to understanding what the client wants, that gives me maybe an avenue of who I need to contact in order to get some information. Mm -hmm. Let's say I go into someone's home and they have some historic wallpaper. Well, I'm not necessarily a wallpaper expert. However, I am familiar with people such as my colleagues from Tulane and beyond who have done theses on wallpapers. They would have those resources that we need to get the client what they want. So that's part of the consultation process. But yes, Languages. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so when when you go about starting your research process, they they give you some whatever they found so far. Um, yes. Where where would you go? What are some of the places that you would go to look for this information? Where can people find stuff? Local universities? Where are some of those types of places that people can go if they're trying to do it a little bit on their own, maybe not here, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe some of our listeners from out of state, and they just need to get an idea of where to start? A great place to start is going up to your city hall and going to the real estate and records division. That is kind of my ground zero here in New Orleans. It gives me the conveyance record numbers. So I can go into the conveyance office to look up those methods. It's it's a hard process to try to describe. I recommend starting with maybe your own house because you're familiar with its location and practicing going to the real estate and records division first to get your conveyance number. Then you can go to the conveyance office, which may be at City Hall or usually they're close in proximity and, and going to the conveyance office. And there you can do a title search. Mm-hmm. And you can go down from owner to owner. It states that, let's say, Taylor sold to Kelly the house at 20 Pine Street in New Orleans. Well, then Kelly sold to Nathan uh, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so you you continue to go down. So that already gives you dates of when a property was transferred, the name of the owner, and property descriptions. A lot of the times properties can increase or decrease with the inclusion of different lots, parcels, 
different buildings. So having that basic information, those are facts. You know, those are hard facts you can write down. Mm -hmm. You know for sure that those are correct. At the end of that process, now you can get kind of creative as far as your next step. One thing I like to do is go online. You can go into historic newspapers. And there's a lot of digital databases such as the Library of Congress or the Historic American Building Survey. And type up your building, see if it's in one of those, or start to type up some of the owner's names. And you'll usually find some information on one or many of them. And then, of course, type in your address. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I, I should I should disclose addresses change over time, especially in old cities right. like New Orleans. So maybe 100 years ago, the addresses that we have now were not the same address that it was back right. then. Not just numbers, but also street names. Correct. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very much so. It's multi-layered. Another great resource, of course, is your public library. Mm -hmm. They are going to be the massive source for censuses, marriage certificates, death certificates, historic maps, even your Sanborn maps that are usually digital, maps of the city. And you can start to create an image of what this building's importance is. It's changes over time. And it's just following the breadcrumbs. So, you know, what I say is that there's no specific avenue that you should go down. You should just start, you know, start with some of those hard facts that we talked about in the beginning, Mm -hmm. going to the Real Estate and Records Division, the Conveyance Office, and the Notarial Archives. And then from there, do some research on specifics and start to follow the breadcrumbs and see where they lead you. If you are doing this by yourself, you probably already have an idea of what you specifically are interested in and what you're not interested in. But... Look it all up if you have the time. Yeah. Sometimes (laughs) you might come across something interesting that you weren't necessarily looking for, but you just found it and it's a really cool story or, you know, something neat happened on your block. I've actually never had a client who was not surprised about something. something. It could be something incredibly small, but like, uh, like corbels. I remember looking at some corbels and I was like, oh, that's from the early 20th century and that one's from mid 20th century well how can you tell well first of all that's aluminum yeah they had no idea <laughs> they were so surprised but of course I, I told them to keep it I said you know that's part of the building's change over right. time and that's that's important too you know you can keep some of those changes it doesn't all have to be the same yeah that's except vinyl windows yeah well we've already done the whole window episode we had oh, you long, have yeah we okay long talk about that <laughs> our first episode with uh, sarah myers we talked about historic windows and and all of that good stuff so yeah i think you know that was something like when, when i came into to school to the mps program you do have to look at those changes that are made and you have to decide when you're looking at the building you know where do I want to take this space? Do I want to take it back to original? Do I want to keep those mm-hmm. uh, window overhangs that were really popular in the middle of the century? Um, because at some point that is part of the history of the house. You know, now those things have been on there for 60 or 80 years. And well, and, and you hit a, a fine point on that. And we'll come back to that when it comes to historic tax credits. Yeah. So remember okay. that about the change over time and it becomes part of the history. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So what what types of things have people done with this information that you've gathered for them? A lot of the time it's for private use, so which makes it easier as far as getting publication rights. You get mm-hmm. if you're going to be published and you're going to use public records, you usually have to get some clearance from the entity that you're using uh, that you're allowed to use that image or information, mm-hmm. but. A lot of people just use it for private use. So they'll do, they'll do little reports for their house or they'll give it out to family members. Yeah. So that's that's normally what they do as far as that kind of research for specific houses. It's usually for private use. Okay. Oh, I do want to take a step back real quick to the to the places that we might go to find this information. You know, we're pretty lucky here in New Orleans. We have a Tulane has great city archives with all types of information. And, and a lot of it they've actually digitized and made available online, which is great. And then, of course, we have other 
places that have mentioned in previous podcasts, the Preservation Resource Center, the Historic New Orleans Collection in in the French Quarter is just a wealth of information. The old but, U.S. Mint, the Louisiana State Museum, right. list goes on and on. And I just recommend everyone to, if they have questions, contact a preservation society in their in their town or area, mm-hmm. and they'll they can tell you some of the resources available of who will have certain pieces of information. Always ask questions. Ask as many yes. questions as you can to the professionals and the people around you. And other places that you can check if you're if you're really just not sure where to begin at all, a, a good place to go to is your your SHPO office. That's your state historic preservation office usually located in the capital city of wherever you live. I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's there's one in Louisiana. It's in Baton Rouge. And then, you know, the the one in Georgia is, is in Atlanta. And if you're, if you're not familiar with what might be available, they can point you in the right direction, too. They usually have contacts for people and other local Oh, as far as resources. I thought yeah. you meant for, for as, archives. No, as far okay. as resources. I like, yeah. Oh, I don't know how I much. I mean, archives. maybe some of them have archives. But just, just if you don't know where to start, at all that would be a good place to start they could point you in the right direction yes and they could give you you know they could tell you this university has this type of thing or you know that's another just another option to to think about because I know we talk we talk a lot about New Orleans because we're here and you know this is what we focus on but for those people that don't live here you know where the the kind of things that they can get started at so um, but I did want to ask you, have you ever had anyone decide that they wanted to do, once you've done this research for their house, do a National Register nomination? I've had a, a couple of inquiries about that, yes. And specifically, we two of the most recent ones I've worked on have to do with districts. Okay. So for specific houses, it's usually kind of a it's an investment for the mm-hmm. owner and it's usually not a necessary investment so they inquire about it i give them the process and my fee they have to think about it mm-hmm. but with the districts that's that's usually kind of an easier pill to swallow because there's many other resources for funding mm-hmm. that kind of project so for for those of you that may be listening that aren't familiar the national register of historic places is a, a government-based listing of exactly what it sounds like it's historic places but the process is lengthy there's a lot of paperwork and forms you have to have um, specific photography right the pictures have to be very specific to get nominated and and it's it it's saved forever you know the government takes that information and archives it and keeps it forever and ever and ever so if buildings are lost it's you know that record is still there but like you said it is an investment because it's a a process and it doesn't really there's no for something like that it's not a protection for the building so it's it's really just to get it archived and saved in case it does disappear at some point correct it's it's and a big misconception about the national register of historic places whether it's as an individual listing or as a district is that the owner believes that once it's designated, that it cannot make changes to the historic structure. Mm-hmm. They also think it cannot be demolished. There, and there's a few other things. However, let's just talk about those two right now. First of all, this program is purely honorary mm-hmm. and does not hold jurisdiction. What it does provide for the building is grant opportunities in case the homeowner would like to use federal or state funds to rehabilitate the structure. So it's it's an honorary program that provides a financial incentive if the owner chooses mm-hmm. to use it and you do not have to. Yeah. But it's not it's not going to be, you know, there's a difference between a national list and a and a local historic district like you were saying it's not it's not a protection. And it's, no. and it's not a regulation. It's really just a recording of your building, essentially, is what it is. But not that it's not worth doing, you know. It's, I, yeah. I think it's always worth doing, but that's just my opinion. Of course, opinion. me too. If you have the time yeah. and the, you know. Yeah, it's like our federal government saying, hey, we really like your building. It's historic, and it deserves some recognition. Congratulations mm-hmm. on that. That's what it's saying. Yeah. 
So, (laughs) you know, I I feel like that is, like you said, it's a sort of a thing that people have maybe a little misconceptions about. So we just want to like touch on that and make sure that, you know, there's no confusion. So I guess uh, next question, do you find you work more with homeowners or businesses in, in general? Well, I would say that I work with building owners and government entities most. And the reason I say building owners is that I work with income producing properties mm-hmm. or commercial buildings. Okay. You know, income can be a residential house that you rent out. Let's say, you know, you buy a house next door and you rent it out. That's an income producing property for you. You know, and we all know what a commercial building is and and government entities. So in the reason why is because there's simply more financial interest and gain for income producing properties and government entities to work with historic preservation consultants because of state and federal grants. Mm-hmm. A lot of the funding that goes into these projects are state and federal grants. And with specific homeowners, actually, I was recently, I officially today, uh, was assigned to by 20 owners in the Garden District to do historic research reports for their individual homes. Uh, That is a neighborhood-led incentive to increase knowledge of their their shared history and Mm -hmm. their individual history. Mm -hmm. So that's a very unusual project where a neighborhood got together to hire a historic preservation consultant to write individual reports about each of their buildings. That's Mm -hmm. very unusual. But it's very exciting. And I'm I'm always maybe a little surprised that building, uh, that homeowners don't contact historic preservation consultants more. However, you know, let, let's talk about that. Why do you think that is? I'm still confused. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I... We, we are so, we're so full of knowledge. We can help. <laughs> we can help you understand your property. And then we see so many homes being renovated with perhaps maybe misled understandings of historic materials. Absolutely. Uh, for, and I, of course, I love contractors, but, you know, maybe maybe some contractors or let's put it more vague, building exp- building workers. <laughs> building workers will try to persuade you to buy things like vinyl windows and right. replace your historic windows when it's severely unnecessary and can permanently scar. Your building, yeah. Your building? Yeah. So, you know, hiring someone maybe to give you an insight into why your building is special Mm -hmm. is always a really good start because that makes you a more informed homeowner. So I just, I want to put that out there. Reach out. And usually consultants are willing to work with you. And I know that for most of America, perhaps our, our funds are a little low, but we're willing to work with you because we're in this industry because we care so much about cultural heritage, architectural preservation, and conservation efforts. So just reach out to us. We want to help. Yeah, it's, <laughs> we certainly we certainly don't do this for the uh, the football player salary. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're, we do I'm, it because we we do it because we love it. It's a it's a, definitely a passion. So I want to move on to our next hypothetical client. So let's say a property owner contacts you after purchasing, I'm saying a new building, but a new old building, a new purchase. And they want to see what types of tax credits or grants are available for renovating the building that they just purchased. Can you describe what tax credits are um, and how people can use them? Of course. Uh First of all, I think historic tax credits are one of the best programs for income-producing properties that are available in the United States. It is such a great deal um, and a great program. It's overall just so wonderful. And I, I hope that as the years go on, we continue to improve and incorporate more technology. It's, it's such a fantastic program. So historic tax credits is a commercial incentive for historic structures It is a dollar-for-dollar credit to your state and federal income taxes to rehabilitate a historic structure in a National Register district or on the National Register individually. So remember, as we were talking about placing a building or district in the National Register of Historic Places, that is one of the requirements for the federal level. Well, you know what? Let me take a step back. Actually, there are... There's two ways that you can apply for a historic tax credit. 
Well, let, let's talk about what that is. <laughs> okay, so a historic tax credit is a dollar for dollar credit on your state or federal income taxes. It is calculated based on what is known as Qualified Rehabilitation Expenditures, or QRE. A QRE is a qualified cost, basically anything that is fixed to the building. Perhaps let's put it into real estate terms. When someone purchases a property, there's usually known as the improvement and a movable. A movable are things like furniture and appliances. Mm -hmm. Those would not be be costs that can be applied for this credit. However, it, it, it of course, you know, if you're rehabilitating, rehabilitating a historic structure and you need a kitchen, of course, you're going to need appliances. However, the appliance wouldn't be an applicable cost. However, anything that's fixed to the building, such as floor restoration, window restoration, paint, nails, new roof, those costs are applicable. So how much money are we talking about? What is this dollar for dollar credit? Well, on the state level for Louisiana, and it can it can vary state to state, but in the state of Louisiana, 20% of your QREs are eligible to be given back in a state tax credit. So let's say you spend $100,000 on a commercial rehabilitation, you can get $20,000 back on your income taxes. Those can be carried over for five years, and at the end of five years, so let's say you only owe $2,000 in taxes every every year. Mm-hmm. So you've spent $10,000 of your credits and you have $10,000 left. Well, what are you going to do with that? You can sell that to a oh. tax credit broker for like $0.89 cents on the dollar. And again, that number can range mm-hmm. depending on what broker that you go to. And the whole purpose of this program is to identify historic structures and increase awareness of the built environment, preserve the architectural treasures. So the federal historic tax credit is also 20% given to income producing properties and you can stack those. So it has most of the same rules as the state as far as uh, what QREs uh, you can apply the credit to. Now, the only thing about this program is that you have to follow the rules set by the Secretary of the Interior Standards for Rehabilitation. And I'll say that again. The Secretary of the Interior's Standards for Rehabilitation. If you Google that, you will be taken to the National Park Service page and be given a PDF of what that is. And it's basically a guidebook of rules to follow or maybe guidelines Mm -hmm. for uh, people renovating historic structures of what to do and what not to do, Mm -hmm. what to keep and what, what you don't have to keep. Now, legally... The public can fill out these applications by themselves. Mm-hmm. However, it is, it's very, it's an open program as far as open interpretation. So it can get a little confusing in that interpretation of, of the rules. So for example, let's use again historic windows as an example. Mm-hmm. Let's say you have one window in your house that a window that is uh, the the pane is broken out, needs a lot of repair to the wood. Well, you're just going to replace that window with like a vinyl window and now you've sealed up the building, no water is going to get in. That should be an eligible cost because it's attached to the building. Mm-hmm. Well, no. Right. That's not how this program is. This program wants you to preserve as much of the original fabric as you can. And the the idea is to repair and not replace. Right. Now, of course, let's be realistic. There are certain things that are going to have to be replaced. Mm-hmm. And understanding maybe what you're allowed to do, that's where you need a historic preservation consultant to really give you a good idea. Because we're talking about things such as textures of a building and materials, Mm -hmm. historic materials and modern materials, they age different. Mm -hmm. They can move differently. Uh, So it's usually good to hire a historic uh, preservation consultant to walk you through the application process uh, or really just to do it for you. I'm going to be honest. It's (laughs) much easier. I've had so many clients who I have to come in in the middle of of their part one or their part two and do it all for them because it's it's it can get very confusing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds confusing. Yeah. (laughs) And there's three parts. So the part one, you have to submit 
to qualify. Is, is this an eligible building? And basically it just proves that yes, it's an eligible building because it fits all the criteria such as it, you're in a national register district, my building is 50 years or older. Uh, so that's the part one. Part two is scope of work. So I have to describe or you, anyone, has to describe the current condition of the building and then all the proposed work. And you have to be very specific about this. Otherwise, they're going to come back and ask you questions. Mm -hmm. I always say it's much easier to be honest in the application, put everything that you want to do, because otherwise this back and forth can take another 30 days or 45 days of, of review. And then the part three is, yes, we finished all the work, and uh, all the approved work, I, sh I should correct myself. And here's, here's the cost of the entire project. Here's the cost of the QREs. And so they sign off on that and give you your check. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm very much simplifying it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a much more complicated process than that. Um, but I think people will have a general idea of kind of what they're, what they're have available now for that kind of stuff. So, but you mentioned the... What if you say, and this may be a curveball, purchase a historic home that contains also relevant furniture, like say somehow you magically can afford a Frank Lloyd Wright house and it still has the original, you know, his original pieces that he designed to go inside the house. Would the furniture in that case, if things needed to be repaired, would that count or is that still considered not attached to the house? My my first reaction, of course, is to say I'm going to check on that. Mm -hmm. I would never want to give a homeowner hope that the historic tax credit is going to see the value the value of that furniture piece. However, it is immovable. However, that is such a fantastic building that we're talking about. In a such an important architect, I'd want to say that it may be applicable as mm -hmm. far as it's part of the building because for so long its identity has been attached not only to the envelope but to the movables. Mm -hmm. And because it, it is it was designed to fit and be part of that space, you know, like it was all together originally. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, that was just something that came to mind when you were talking about the movable stuff. So it's very interesting. Well, you know, and I'm trying to apply it maybe more down here to some of our like our plantations, for mm -hmm. example, who have had period furniture handed down from owner to owner for the specific purpose of this. This piece has been attached to the building since its erection construction. <laughs> so However, I don't think that the State Historic Preservation Office would identify that as something that would be eligible. I, yeah. I don't think so. I would have to double check. That could be something maybe that one of the shippos can come down and answer for you. However, let's say let's say they do not see those costs as eligible for a credit. You could apply for a grant for furniture restoration or, of course, hire or invest in, in a a restoration expert for antiques mm -hmm. and the well, decorative arts. Since you mentioned grants, that's a good segue into my next question because, it, you know, the tax credits are really more for those uh, commercial buildings. But what other financial aids and grants would be available for historic property owners if they're not necessarily a, you know, commercial income-driven property? Are there other things available that just Mary down the street could get for her house? They, yeah, there, there are open grants for homeowners that they can apply for. You have to go on the internet and research. You have to do some research on those. It absolutely is available. But again, a historic preservation consultant can do that research for you and filter out what you are eligible for. So don't discount it. Don't think immediately that you may not qualify for something because there might be something out there that you could use to, to help you with your with your home or your your project well that answers the next question too basically that I was going to ask you okay <laughs> the differences one? between uh, residential and commercial properties for those types of things so well you know and we should kind of I should say again for the historic tax credit a residence a residential building can be a commercial building as far as income producing. Mm -hmm. So that would be applicable. But as far as something that the homeowner lives in himself, mm -hmm. it's not applicable for the historic tax credit, 
currently in Louisiana, some states do offer a residential credit. So as Taylor suggested earlier, call your state historic preservation office and ask if the home that you live in is eligible Mm -hmm. or if they even have a residential state historic tax credit. There is no federal one, by the way. Okay. (laughs) Federal is only commercial. Oh, you know, we didn't even mention you can stack both the state and federal. So let's say you are eligible for the state credit and the federal credit. You can stack those and get 40% back on your QREs. That that was a very important thing. Yes. <laughs> it's a huge incentive, and you can see why a lot of people choose to go that route. Mm-hmm. It's a huge economic boost, and it helps development. It's, it's incredible. You, just look at the numbers. It's billions of dollars in investment in small towns and big towns. Absolutely. We were able to go um, a couple weeks ago to a building downtown that had recently been finished. That was, it's a commercial rental residences that's in, uh, in the downtown area of New Orleans. And that particular group worked with the Preservation Resource Center to get their tax credits and, and to turn this building into rental units. And one of the things that they ran into was to qualify, there was an original staircase inside one of the buildings and an original sort of hallway lobby window area. And they were required to keep that. And their original plan for that particular unit, these are condo units, was to to tear out that staircase. And the the SHPO came back and said, no, if you want these tax credits, you you have to keep this. It's part of these. Man, that was close. Yeah, I mean, and, and so we got, we got to tour it, which was really nice, you know, and we got to see the staircase in, in that original space. And they, I think they fitted into the condo well. They ended up having to make it into more like a two-story thing instead of a one-story. And, and I, I think it's nice. I like having, I mean, of course I'm going to think it's nice, but I think the staircase is beautiful in there. And that little sort of hallway window space makes this – um, you know, small space at the front of the apartment that you walk into, but it, it just has this great feeling. And it almost kind of feels like, and this is going to sound kind of weird, it almost kind of feels like a PI's office when you walk in there because there's like this cool staircase. There's this big window on the side, like somebody's going to be in a desk on the other side of the window. You know mm. what I mean? Like, I don't know. It just had this great vibe. And so I'm really glad that they were required to keep it because I think it worked out well inside the space. And then, of course, going up and down the stairs, then at that point you realize that there are old stairs and they've got that cool groove in the middle from people walking up and down the wood for a hundred years, you know. And in these particular buildings, there were actually three um, that they sort of combined into one larger building are all pre-Civil War, original pre-Civil War fabrications. So the shell of these buildings is very, very old. And, um, you know, had some art deco inside from when they were renovated in the early 20th century the first time. So very fascinating project. But that was something that he mentioned when we were doing the tour, that they were required to keep those particular details to make sure that they got their tax credits. So that is something to think about when you're looking into that. What a great success story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful building. And it's a little out of my price range, but, you know, mm-hmm. that's all right. I like my little house. There you go. <laughs> I love your house. Uh, thank you. I like it, too. So I just want to move forward here. So you and I met when you were working on a fairly large project for the city of Hammond. Mm-hmm. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Hammond, it's about 50 miles northwest-ish from New Orleans. It's the home of Southeastern Louisiana University. I've spent some time there. It's a, it's a cute little town that has all of a, its own interesting history in itself. And so can you tell us about that project that you were doing for the city of Hammond? Definitely. It's called the Central Hammond Historic Structure Survey. Uh, I was commissioned by the Hammond Historic District Commission to perform a survey of 1,400 structures, both historic and non-historic around Hammond in the efforts to potentially increase their National Register District. Currently, their National Register District is only in downtown, 
And so they wanted to explore what the architectural stock was in order to build a new historic district or mini districts. The grant that was used to fund that project is called the Certified Local Government Grant Program. It is a cost given to government entities, a certified local government or a CLG, to and it's it's usually a a matching grant, which means the state of Louisiana will give half the funds and the CLG that is applying for it provides the other half of the funds. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a cost that is proposed to the city planning commission. And it has to be approved on many government levels. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it this was a huge opportunity for Hammond to get on the map. Recently, there has been a lot of demolition happening, happening in Hammond. And a lot of the demolition was happening to some mid-century modern buildings. Oh, no. And, of course, now we are, in our industry, we are becoming extremely aware. And we're all big fans of mid-century yes, modern. Yes, we are. Huge fans. Mid-century modern furniture, mid-century modern buildings, mid-century modern everything. Music, clothes. Well, <laughs> you know, let, let's talk about the building. I'll get back on track. So the building. <laughs> they started to notice a an alarming rate of demolition. Mm-hmm. And in order to educate, they decided to do this survey. And it was like an outreach program to inform the city that these structures deserve your attention. Let's think about this before you demolish that structure. And Hammond has done a great job with becoming more aware of the architectural stock that they have and becoming more discriminating about those demolition applications. Mm-hmm. Well, after six months of surveying, and Taylor, you were with me for some of the coldest days of that. And here in South Louisiana, we don't get very many, uh, many cold days, but we're so humid that whenever it gets below 30, it feels like zero degrees. And we had some cold days last winter. It was very, very cold. Very unusual. Even in the sun. I remember Mm -hmm. one sunny day we were out there, but we were freezing. It was very windy. Yeah. We were trying to take pictures with gloves. With and gloves. It wasn't yeah. working. And we were in a neighborhood where a lot of the citizens were asking a lot of questions. And so that we were getting tied up a lot. And that, that just comes with the job whenever you're surveying a neighborhood. People are going to come out and talk to you. And it's expected. Mm-hmm. And, and you want to educate them because the whole purpose of this is is education and outreach. And then economic incentives, you know, and there, there's it's multi-layers. So we're, we're so happy that neighbors come out. But it holds up the process yeah. a little bit. However, just, you know, if you see someone survey your house, absolutely go say hi, talk to them, but be aware that they, they're on a deadline. Right. And unless, you know, that it, it was nice to visit that one lady's house, though, to see the inside of the project that they were working on. That second day we were out there, I'm just trying I to remember. remember. <laughs> I know there it's going to come to me. There was I'm a gonna... very nice family that let us come into to their house that had been working <gasps> and doing the renovations. Woman, the yeah. three sisters. The, the, the houses that were yeah, called the, the Three, three sisters. sisters. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was like this beautiful blend of Craftsman and Queen Anne. Oh. It was a, yeah, it was a really nice house. It was and really it, nice of her to let us uh, come inside. And, and she was very proud to show us some of the work. And, of course, you know, Taylor and I, we, there, there are some things that we did not necessarily agree with. However, at the end of the day, she's proud and she wants to become more educated. So... And they I'm were glad. making it functional for what their family needed as well. You know, they had a couple right. of kids, and so they need a bigger bathroom and some different spaces. And so, you know, it wasn't all necessarily, like you said, what we would have done, but they were definitely using what they had to make it work for the way their family was set up, which is essentially what everybody kind of wants to do. But still keeping the, what was it, the original ice box mm-hmm. in the wall and, you know, some some of those really nice details that, that you don't want to get rid of when, when you're doing that kind of work, so... Yeah, that was a very fun project. It, it was it took a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's great about the any survey that you do for the government is the public can get involved. Mm-hmm. So just ask the lead surveyor if you want to come out and survey, and they'll usually find a task that they that you can help out with, just such as taking the pictures. Mm-hmm. And you know you can usually listen to the surveyor of why they're uh, of terms. We have to classify as far as you know uh, massing. And then styles, 
and identifying materials. And a lot of the public are very interested in understanding what those terms mean. Mm -hmm. So you you basically walk around. This is the sort of the process that we had. We, We just walked around the neighborhood and we plotted our addresses and we took notes about what the buildings looked like from the outside. And, you know, materials and height and roof structures and if there were garages or, you know, that sort of thing. And then we took pictures from all the angles that we could get without, of course, you know, trespassing in people's backyards and stuff. For this this kind of, of, um, yeah, it has to be on the sidewalk. You're not allowed to go on their property. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, be very aware. There's only so much you can do with that. Yeah. And so how many yeah. structures did you end up surveying altogether? It, it ended up being about 1,200. Yeah. So 1,400 was our estimated goal. However, there it took so much more time than we expected, than we proposed. So that I'm, I'm applying for a grant now for a similar one in Lake Charles. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, again, about 1,400. I learned so much from the Hammond survey of what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that we can take from photographs and we don't have to take as many on-site notes, yeah. notes. so that's something I learned uh, but that that's great now I get to go to Lake Charles and maybe do it in two-thirds of the time mm-hmm. or less mm-hmm. and so you you kind of moved into my next question a little bit there but what were some of the like you said what were some of the issues that you ran into when you were doing because this it is such a large-scale survey that you were doing for, for some of the issues for surveying you mean? Yeah, just yeah. just kind of the things that you ran into that you had you hadn't anticipated, I guess, when you when you started the project. I did not. So I scheduled. I remember whenever I proposed, you have to make out a proposal, mm-hmm. uh, and you have to quantify everything: your time, mileage, everything. And I think I calculated between six and ten minutes per building for surveying. Mm-hmm. And taking on-site notes was taking so much longer than six to ten minutes. So that was a challenge, understanding a method of surveying that was useful. Another thing that was challenging for this survey was that we had to do it by hand. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we have technology such as iPads and a digital database that we can automatically input information into mm-hmm. on-site. That would that was a challenge having to do it by hand first and then go back to my computer in my enter office in. and enter it in. Mm-hmm. A third challenge that we had here in Louisiana, we switched our forms. So we had a very lengthy form for the inventory, and you can get an inventory form um, in any state. It's provided. It's a public form. So Louisiana had a very detailed form that they wanted to be made. During the middle of this process, they switched the form Mm -hmm. to something much more simple. And so all the work that I had done for the first three months was no longer, I I had to re-enter it into a new form. So I had to go back. I remember when the form came to my email box and I looked at it and I knew all the work that we were going to have to do to transfer the old form into the new form. Mm -hmm. And I felt so bad for my volunteer surveyors. Like, like you, Taylor, I was like, oh my gosh, all this work, she's going to be so mad at me. <laughs> she's going to be so mad. People are going to be like, why am I helping mm-hmm. with this? Well, I didn't know about this either, but that was a huge challenge. Another challenge was that I was doing it by myself. However, very early on, I made a call to my preservation colleagues and said, hey, I'm doing a survey. Who wants to help? Mm-hmm. And that's when Taylor contacted me and we met for the first time out in the, I think you came to my house and we rode yeah. together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she was interested. So she came up on a Saturday, you guys. She came up on a Saturday for many Saturdays to come up and help me in Hammond in the bitter cold. That's dedication to preservation. <laughs> so congratulations. Yeah, we. I think somebody put it in our alumni group on Facebook, shared that you were looking for people. I think that's how I found it, I'm pretty sure. But that, that's been a, a great resource, too. Do you prefer working on larger projects like the Hammond project or do you like doing smaller, more individualized projects? Ooh, you know, it's not that I like one or the other. I just like a variety of work Mm -hmm. and this industry provides me that variety. Mm -hmm. I am constantly surprised and impressed by the questions that my clients have on a small or large scale and constantly learning about the availability 
of historic preservation to private and public owners of historic structures and sites. Mm-hmm. I like everything. Yeah. I, asked, I just don't like boring. Yeah. My mother always <laughs> said uh, to be boring is a sin. <laughs> it's funny because she's not very religious. Oh. But that's even funnier that she said that. <laughs> I did ask um, in episode three, I asked uh, my guest Heather the same kind of question, and that's basically what she said too. Really? Yeah. She was like, I, I like that I get to do there's lots of different things, you know, and, and I think that and there's always – there's always something to learn, mm-hmm. no matter what you're doing, even if you've done it a hundred times before. Every project is different, and there's always something new and exciting that you'll find that you've never come across before. And I just think that, that that's really great, and that seems to be a pretty common answer for people. That Yes, my, my grandfather was a pediatrician, and before he passed away a couple of years ago, he said, he said Kelly, you know, I'm, I'm 80 years old. And I've never stopped learning. I learn mm-hmm. something new every day from the children that come into my office, from the parents. And I always remembered that. And I think that no matter what your industry is, you have to remember we are always learning more. And we're all we're 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 students of mm-hmm. life. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and and in preservation too, you know, this this stuff, it's it's always changing. You know, you have people that organizations like um, the NCPTT, which is the National Center for Preservation Technology, Training and Technology, that are that are doing experiments and, and coming up with new processes for ways to, to better preserve things. And not just buildings, but monuments and cemeteries. And, you know, so that kind of stuff is always changing. And like you said, moving from paper to being able to record things digitally, you know, that's been a huge step, mm-hmm. um, you know, in into that technology forum and and so you kind of have to like be willing to try out new things and see what else is going on and what's new and available coming out because you always want to get better and improve your craft and go to training classes and you know do that that's right stuff. so um in addition to all of this stuff that we've already talked about that you already do you are also a real estate agent and you're on the board and committees um, for several organizations. So can you talk about that a little bit? So, uh, certainly. So with real estate, I came into that as a – it's a very good resource for me as a historic preservation consultant. And I was constantly approached by people inquiring about historic structures to do a – historic tax credit application, and I worked with a realtor, and I still work, work with one pretty intimately, and it was so much easier for me to go ahead and get licensed mm-hmm. to cut out the middleman because there there are things about historic structures that a lot of real estate agents perhaps don't understand. Right. However, there are a, there are a lot that do. Mm-hmm. And so if that is something that is important to you as a potential buyer – if you're interviewing realtors, ask about their understanding of historic structures. Absolutely. Or if they know of someone who is a, an, a uh, specialist mm-hmm. for historic houses, and there's usually you know some kind of incentive for them to make that connection. But always ask questions. I always say that you know just because you approach a realtor doesn't mean that you have to go with them. You're interviewing them, and they're interviewing you, and you have to find the right fit. And that that's very important. I, I absolutely love real estate, and there's so many there's so many things that are available to me as far as a real estate market and analysis tool that I can use to make stronger arguments for historic tax credits or rehabilitations. Mm-hmm. I can do a comparative market analysis and show dollar, you know, by the dollars and cents, this house with very strong historic and architectural integrity sold for a million dollars. This one that had multiple changes before it went on the market and let's say has vinyl windows. I'm so sorry to keep bringing that up. (laughs) Um, This one sold for Mm $600,000 and it has many of the same square footage in the same neighborhood, but those are important and and very important details as far as the value of a building. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, my brand of historic preservation is more economics, dollars and cents, what makes sense, what makes sense, dollars (laughs) and cents. So this has become such an incredible tool and it wasn't even, I, I, I didn't think about it myself 
a real estate agent told me to do it. They were like, Kelly, you have your master's. You you can you can get this license soon. First of all, it's much harder to get a real estate license than I realized. Yeah. It actually does take a lot of studying. So I, I take my hat off to all the realtors out there. <laughs> it is such an incredible industry you're in. And it requires that you do continuing education constantly mm-hmm. throughout the entire year. Uh, so that was that. And then what was the second part of your question? Oh, the oh, boards? Boards and committees, yeah. Oh, <laughs> as Taylor knows, and as most everyone in New Orleans knows who knows me, I am very social. And I think that that is a, one of my tools, I'll say like tools for success. What is something about yourself that you can use, you know, to market yourself or to brand yourself, to put yourself out there? I genuinely love spending time with people, getting to know people, talking with people, and I feel like I can, it's not always very formal. I don't get uncomfortable in many situations. So as a result, a lot of boards have come up to me in New Orleans and asked me to be on their board. And it's such an honor. You know, it's coming out of grad school and being on a board seems like such an important thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so very, maybe like a year after, there there were already like five five boards that had asked me to be uh, be on there with them and I was so honored I felt I felt like wow they, they really want me well uh, yes you know we always forget that we have this amazing education first of all Tulane University Master of Preservation Studies program is just one of the best programs I highly recommend anyone interested in historic preservation to to go and talk with the director John Stubbs mm-hmm. uh, he'll he'll give you some good information we always think about, you know, our value and what we're good at. And I know my strengths pretty well. I do not mind talking to people and boards need people who don't mind talking to people because right. most of the time your job on the board is to connect people mm-hmm. or ask for um, a donation or get people rallied in for an event. Yeah, come and to the gala. Come to the gala. Yeah. Come to the gala. But anyway, so that's a big tool of mine is that I don't mind sharing information about things that I'm passionate about to my network of people. Mm-hmm. And boards find that pretty attractive. So what boards am I on? Uh, one of the boards that I've been involved in last year was Future NOLA. It is a look at the next 300 years of New Orleans. What is that going to look like, feel like, taste like? So it's a call for submissions to architects, artists, musicians, dancers to submit what they think that's going to look like. We make a book out of it, and then we put that into an exhibit at the Cabildo in Jackson Square, the highest real estate value in the entire South. (laughs) Another one that I am on, I'm on the VC Pora Tricentennial Gala Junior Committee. And that committee, the junior committee, is an effort to get the the 30-somethings and the 20-somethings involved in the VC Pora. And that's the Bucure Property Resident Association. Property owners, residents, and something. And associates? Yeah, something like that. And associates, yeah. I'm sorry, Meg. Meg's going to listen to this, and <laughs> she's the director. And so trying to get some of the 30-somethings involved in historic preservation in, in the French Quarter, especially mm-hmm. with this Tricentennial Gala, investing in coming and buying a ticket, and communicating why it's important. And I, I was so honored, especially for the junior committee position, because I think that for such a long time, historic preservation was viewed as something different maybe more elite i i've I've heard that word so often yeah or i I hate to use the word older but older you know i think a lot of people think of it as as you know i may have mentioned this before in a previous podcast like the little old ladies raising money to save the the covered bridge or to to do the work or or they think of it as as not something that like a lot of younger people are Mm -hmm. are interested in Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's sort of yeah so that's the connotation yeah and so now it's our job as these emerging historic preservationists now this is a master's degree now this is an an economics issue Mm -hmm. this is a federally and and statewide recognized industry so it's no longer the covered bridge just for the elite to donate money
Do you have any advice for someone who's interested in getting more involved in preservation? Well, this is a great question because, and I like how you word that, getting involved in preservation, that can mean many things. Of course, if you're interested in getting a formal education, I would I would first ask yourself what you're looking to get out of it, such as, are you more into material science? Are you into material conservation? Are you into advocacy? Are you into historic research? Are you into world traveling? There, there are many avenues of historic preservation, and I would ask anyone who's interested to really do some self-reflection and ask yourself what you're already good at, what is your natural disposition as far as a, a person, what your value could be, what you're interested in, and then shop around for universities mm-hmm. that offer formal education. And s- some offer a bachelor's as well. So if you, you are not interested in a master's or or certificates or too. certificates, they have those as well, such as Tulane, they offer a certificate of the Masters of Pres- of the Preservation Studies. If you're looking to get involved more on a voluntary level, there are organizations in your towns that are always looking for volunteers to do work, such as docents for historic house tours, or there are maybe a surveyor around you is looking for some help and you can go out and learn terms and and take architectural photographs and learn from them you can oh let's see taylor what else what else can well i mean you can you can find out if there's a local historic district near you that may need committee or board members or volunteers to help with fundraising events and that kind of stuff yeah yeah like if you know of a nonprofit or any kind of building that you're passionate about Mm -hmm. ask them if there's an opening on the board for you, and most of the time, if there isn't, then they'll make room for you because uh, passion is preservation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what are some other things that you could do. Uh, it depends on what you're interested in yeah, doing. Yeah. Also, there's also, you know, if you're interested in materials or, you know, those types of things, you can even look at galleries, museums. Always need volunteers for things. I just say show up and start making your face known. Yeah. Whenever I started Calhoun Preservation, I I was I was just a, a grad student. Even though I was a very social grad student, I went to a lot of functions. I was still a, a new person in town. So I kept showing up to events thrown by preservationists uh, around the city. And eventually people started knowing my name. And I kept repeating my name. Like, I'm Kelly Calhoun. Kelly mm-hmm. Calhoun. And now it's a nice alliteration. So people call me Kelly Calhoun and not just Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it just takes that kind of effort. Just show up, show up, show up. And eventually, you'll stick. It's like, okay, this person's serious. Yeah. <laughs> if you show up once, they're probably not going to yeah. uh, take notice. But that's natural. I, I think, you know, if someone came to one of your parties, you wouldn't remember their name. But if they came to all your parties, then then it's like, okay, There's, I should pay attention yeah, to this person. They're really interested in this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I did want to mention that if you go to our website, preservationdestination.com, we do have a resources page where you can find a lot of the organizations that we talked about today, like the National Trust, um, the National Register, uh, the VC Pora here in New Orleans, the VCC, which is the Vucare Commission. Uh, we do have a resources page on the website if you want to link to those Uh, and get more information about any of those projects. We also have a link to tax credits and some other things. So definitely check out that resources page on the website. And so to finish up, can you let our listeners know how they get get in touch with you if they want to find you or where they can find you on social media? Yes, I have a website. It's www.calhounpreservation.com. Calhoun is spelled (laughs) C-A-L-H-O-U-N. Calhoun Preservation. And that is also the URL for all of my social media. I am on Facebook and Instagram. So no Twitter. No Twitter. Yeah, I'm not on Twitter either. I'm just, you know, mm. I'm interested in the mean tweets that are Jimmy Kimmel <laughs> right. does. <laughs> uh, those are those are funny. I mean, even though they're terribly mean, I would never say such mean things about people. 
But yeah, Twitter's not really my thing. Instagram is such a great tool for preservationists. I follow so many hashtags. Yeah, me too. Regarding our industry. And it's a good way to find people too. Um, You know, I found some, some guests on, on Instagram, just like randomly following people. So it's a, it's a great tool. And I think for us, it, it is important to have the images, which, yes, you know. Oh, and they can email me. I love my email. It's kelly at calhounpreservation.com. And Kelly is spelled K-E-L-L-Y. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, I think that's all we have for you today. Thank you for being here. And... Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.